without further ado or words from me, would you please join me in welcoming Emeritus Professor Martin Daunton. Well, thank you for that um, overly generous introduction. When I was asked to deliver this oration, I was asked to produce a very short outline, a synopsis of what I wanted to talk about. And I produced that outline about three months ago. And I said this, the pursuit of national self-interest and the imperatives of the global economy are always in tension and can decline into destructive economic nationalism as in the 1930s or into hyper-globalisation at the end of the 20th century. After the Second World War, the Bretton Woods regime struck a balance between the two forces. The world now faces a critical moment as it did at the end of the previous era of globalisation before the First World War. Our multilateralism could be overturned by economic nationalism. Can a new balance be found? Well, that seemed fairly topical when I wrote it three months ago. And then this morning in the, Australia, in the age, uh, your treasurer makes basically the same point. <laughs> now, I don't know if he'd be sort of looking at this, uh, this or, or not, or perhaps it indicates that great minds think alike. And he was referring back to the Bretton Woods legacy, saying that at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, uh, institutions were created, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and that they created um, amelioration of tensions between, between nations. And he said, we must do this again. We must work together and invoke the spirit of Bretton Woods so we can meet the challenges and create peace and prosperity. So it seems as if what I'm talking about tonight is very much in the air here in Australia. Now, I've been trying to write a book on this subject for the... Well, I won't tell you how many years I've been trying to write the book for, <laughs> uh, but it's finished. It's sitting on my desk at home. And the book deals with the period from 1933 through to the present about the, the, the fall, rise, and what happens next of globalisation. And the book has a number of phases. The first phase is to start with the failure of the World Monetary and Economic Conference of 1933. Globalisation collapses. If you think about who was there in London in 1933, the Americans. Roosevelt has decided to go for prosperity at home before overseas. Hitler, obviously he wasn't very keen on building peace around the world, opting for bilateralism, barter trade. The Latin Americans, import substituting industrialization. Britain, imperial preference. Japan, the co-prosperity sphere invading Mongolia. Soviet Union, turning to autarky. So it's a world of insular capitalism which was falling apart into destructive currency devaluation, trade warfare, which the Treasurer talked about in his article. The second phase, then, is to repair that, to correct those competitions, those collapses into warfare. And that is the task at Bretton Woods, in 1944. And the task there was to balance 
destructive nationalism against the pursuit of internationalism <coughs> to make sure that you can have internationalism without removing domestic autarky, or domestic autonomy. independence, autonomy. <clears throat> and it's what I call thin multilateralism. You create some credible rules to allow countries to adopt their own economic policies without being destructive of the international order. It's a rules-based system to prevent beggar my neighbour whilst allowing space for domestic autonomy. And that works. <clears throat> the next phase, though, is to overturn that by swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction towards internationalism, what I called hyperglobalization. The IMF was set up in 1944 to prevent the undermining of domestic autonomy by too much capital mobility, <coughs> too much financial liberalization. But what the IMF then starts to do from the 1970s is to positively encourage financial liberalization, to impose the Washington Consensus, even when it was against the domestic economic interests of countries like South Korea. In other words, the pendulum has swung too much in the other direction. And that, of course, leads to a backlash. And that's the phase we are now in. So the book ends with President Trump. <laughs> that's why I was waiting, you see, for years to know how the hell to finish this book. And the end of history, it seems, is President Trump. During the election campaign, uh, Trump said that if his policy contradicted the IMF, then it doesn't matter. If that's the case, we're going to pull out. The WTO is a disaster. And true to his word, when he was elected, he tweeted, when a country, the USA, is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Well, it looks a little bit like back to 1933, mm. which is not a very comforting thought. Mm. Now, if we look at that, that graph, what we see there is that rise and fall of uh, globalisation. <coughs> uh, a peak of capital mobility up to 1914, a collapse, and then we're back to where we were by 2000. You see the figures. So that's the, uh, the statistics underlining it. And there you have the uh, trade um, flows, again, the collapse, the rise, and the role of the WTO with these trade rounds, the Tokyo round, the Uruguay round. So it's all upward. Could it be um, now a possibility of a downturn, uh, a blip, I call it, or could it actually be worse than that? So what we have is a situation whereby the Financial Times and the IMF refer to a synchronised global slowdown with trade falling faster than output in that graph there and also a slowing down of global capital flows. Well, is this, is this important? Is this just a moment? Or could it become something worse as it did before? And... <clears throat> That's really what I want, I'm, I'm talking about tonight. Could it end? Or is it different this time? Could history repeat itself or not? Now, this is something which your Prime Minister 
is reflecting upon. Again, I didn't realise when I wrote my little blurb that your Prime Minister would be saying such things. Let's have a look what he said in his Lari lecture of the 3rd of October. He said that pragmatic international engagement based on the cooperation of sovereign nation states is being challenged by a new variant of globalism that seeks to elevate global institutions above the authority of nation states. In other words, he's gone too far towards global institutions telling a country what to do. He says, what we want is positive and practical globalism. You don't want to have isolationism and protectionism, but we do want to make sure that national interests are looked after. It's not about conformity, it's about independence for the nation state. And above all, this includes respecting electoral mandates of constituencies. We must avoid negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and, worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Only a national government, especially one accountable through the ballot box and the rule of law, can define its national interests. Now, some people read that, I think wrongly, as being a bit like President Trump. Mm. That it looks as if he's saying to global institutions, stay out of our affairs. Well, we saw the Treasury is not saying that. I don't think either that Scott Morrison was saying that. He's not just going for what I called in the introduction to uh, the lecture a pursuit of national self-interest and a decline into destructive economic nationalism. Trump is doing that. Trump wants to make America great by attacking multilateral institutions. He, wants a, he sees trade as a zero-sum game. Well, that is not the case with uh, your Prime Minister. To Scott Morrison and to the Treasurer, national interests actually require multilateral institutions. The multilateral institutions are a way of guaranteeing and protecting Australian autonomy, provided you don't have an intrusion into Australian domestic politics by an unaccountable international bureaucracy, which contradicts a, democratic global, a democratically elected national government. Now, there are two examples where one could possibly see an intrusion of this globalist bureaucracy into Australian affairs. One of them was the Whitlam Lecture uh, on the 9th of October by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, who basically ticked off Australia for not doing what she thought should be done uh, about uh, the rights of asylum seekers and migrants. And she said, I strongly believe we are at a point now where it is time to roll back these policies or at least mitigate the worst effects. So you could there say, well, what's that got to do with you if those policies have been democratically uh, 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 validated by the electorate? And that's what the Australians said. Who was she to tell Australian electors that they got it wrong? Well, you could say, it actually is a policy, as UN High Commissioners say, what she thinks is the case. But you could understand the point. And a second way in which you could see 
the unaccountable bureaucracy interfering is the IMF fiscal monitor, uh, also this uh, last month in October, which said that to stop a global rise of temperature by 2% to reduce carbon dioxide, there should be a carbon tax on fossil fuels rising rapidly to 75 US dollars a tonne by 2030, revenue from that being used to support poorer households and affected sectors and to invest in clean infrastructure. Well, the Australian said that that was an unverified claim about climate change. Well, let's, assume, let's accept that there is climate change, but even if one does do that, the question remains, what has that got to do with the IMF? The IMF was set up in 1944 to manage exchange rates and the balance of payments. Is it legitimate for it to intervene in domestic politics in this way when it obviously failed to deal with what it should have been doing, which is financial stability before the GFC? So you can see that there are issues here about where international agencies should intervene or not. And I think Scott Morrison is saying there are limits to where the intervention should come. And that is the really big issue. And I think what Scott Morrison is really concerned about is the way in which you don't reject multilateralism, but you make sure that the rules that are adopted by those international institutions protect national interests. And that was the thin multilateralism I talked about after 1944. And as I see it, and who am I to say how uh, you see it in Australia, but looking from outside, what I see is that you're caught between a need for security from the United States and a need to trade with China. And you can't choose one over the other. And that therefore, adherence to a WTO rules-based system is a solution, provided it is a well-functioning rules-based system where you don't have to choose between China and the United States. Your major trading partners are also WTO members. And what you want to make sure is that countries agree to trade according to rules and procedures with adjudication not based upon your commercial weight, China, or the military weight of the United States, but by a mutually agreed dispute settlement system. So I think that is uh, why Scott Morrison is, is saying what he does. Multilateralism and nationalism are compatible and not a Trumpian opposition. Now, I have a section in my lecture here which reads, talk about Brexit if there's time. <laughs> there's not. <laughs> If you want to ask questions about Brexit, please do. But in, but in order to stay on time, let me just say, similar debates occur within Britain. Mm. That the people who want to leave the unaccountable bureaucracy of Brussels say, we want to trade on WTO terms. But I don't think they understand what WTO term is. Chris Patton recently said, on the radio, they wouldn't know what a WTO rule was if it came and smacked them in the face. I'll just leave that image uh, with, with you. The crucial issue, both for Scott Morrison and Brexit, is what are the appropriate limits of international institutions to constrain national sovereignty? Now, I think we have to be careful here. 
nationalism can be both good and bad. <clears throat> nationalism can be ethnic nationalism, as in the Balkans. It can be economic warfare, as in the 1930s. Or it can be civic nationalism, which is a sensible defence of the welfare of citizens based upon shared values. Similarly, multilateral institutions can be good, a credible commitment to stop destructive self-seeking national behaviour, or bad, imposing policies on democratically elected governments against their wishes, like South Korea that I, I mentioned, or Greece in the Eurozone crisis. Now the big issue is, where do we draw those lines? And this is a sort of philosophical issue. And I just want to think about this a moment over the, that IMF report on global climate change. Some people would see that as, an, as a, an imposition, an intrusion upon national sovereignty. Some people would say the WTO, radicals on the left might say the WTO is working in the interests of global capitalism against the interests of uh, communities within different countries which are being affected by, by world trade. One could argue that, there are, that international institutions should only deal with things which are the global commons. That was not education or healthcare within an individual country, but things which do really have spillover effects of the global commons. Now, if you argue that, of course, climate change is one of those. So in that case, you could say the IMF fiscal monitor report is just right. That is a global common. But let's just think about that. You might say, no, it's not. That's an intrusion in a democratically elected government. Take the case of the fires in the Amazon at the moment. The president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, is democratically elected. But should he be allowed, as a democratically elected government, to allow fires to rage in the Amazon, which might then lead to global warming? Well, the G20 had a debate over that, and there was a suggestion, particularly from President Macron, that the Brazilian should stop it, but should be given money to stop it. To which Bolsonaro, of course, says, this is neocolonialism. And why don't you in France instead spend your money to reforest France because you cut down all your trees in the Middle Ages? <laughs> so you can imagine here that there is a, a debate over what is legitimate. The, if you were a, not Bolsonaro, but an Extinction Rebellion person causing chaos in London and Melbourne uh, by blocking the traffic, you would say the IMF paper is just what's needed. This is the responsibility of international institutions for an international issue. And it's just like mobilisation in the Second World War or martial aid after 1945. That's what Joe Stiglitz has said. So these are questions of political philosophy almost. Now, I'm a mere historian. I can't deal with political philosophy. So what I'm going to do now is have a look at, as a historian how to think about some of these, these issues. So let me just turn to that. Let me, if I come off the fence, and say what my view is on these issues. <clears throat> I think that the IMF, set up in 1944, was set up to deal with financial stability. 
financial regulation, and that's within its remit. But it neglected that before 2008. It was basically, basically absent in the GFC. So why should it start to take on highly contentious issues about climate change, which are outside its remit, which might actually delegitimize what is within its remit? So better to concentrate on what you should be doing. It might be better on climate change to have a commitment by individual countries to good intentions in general protocols, like the, the Kyoto Climate Change Protocol. Not binding or enforceable, but building up a consensus. That what is needed then is popular pressure, or electoral pressure through democratic means within national institutions, nation states, in order to build up that consensus. And that corporations will want to invest in green technology when and if it's profitable. So we need action at the local level, which is democratic, to demonstrate what is feasible and to encourage a wider sense of change. And you don't do that by undemocratic Extinction Rebellion movements, which might actually delegitimate, delegitimate the demands. A casing point in how one goes about this, I think, is another aspect of a global good, which is tax havens, base shifting and profit erosion. <coughs> Sorry, base erosion and profit shifting, get the right way around. Where there, the OECD, working with less developed countries, have built up a consensus, working with the IMF, over changes in taxation. And that was about a careful building up of consensus with <coughs> nation states to create a feasible pressure for change. That's how I would see it. Now, let me move to the second aspect of my title, End of Globalisation. Is there actually a risk that there should be a second period of deglobalisation? a retreat into destructive nationalism, or is it just a, a blip? And I think the world is at a crucial point. Could economic nationalism lead to trade war? Could the attempt to create these international institutions I talked about fail, as they have done in the past? Could the world end up with a standoff, not just economically, but strategically, because there are so many flashpoints around the world which could spill over into hot war. I could talk about similarities with 1914, where a spark anywhere could lead to a destructive conflict. So globalisation has collapsed in the past into destructive economic nationalism. Could it do so again? Are the post-war multilateral institutions strong enough? Can they hold or might they collapse? Now, as a historian, what I would try to do here is analyse past periods by looking at each period as an unstable equilibrium. And there are tensions within each period which can tip it one way or the other. And what we need to do is to apply the same sort of analysis today as we have in past episodes. So it's a mode of analysis, a mode of thinking, if you like. And let's just go through very quickly these different periods and how the unstable 
equilibrium has tipped one way or the other. So this is a, if like a quick um, survey of a century of history. So hold on to your seats. Here we go. Uh, the first part of it is the era of globalization before 1914. That massive rise in that, um, that graph that I, I showed you about uh, capital mobility, for example. Now, the point here is that that surge of globalization is coterminous with the creation of the modern nation state. And that was vital because the modern nation state, like Bismarck's Germany, social welfare, the British welfare state before the First World War, liberal welfare reforms, that mitigates the strains imposed upon people by globalization. So the nation state was vital for globalization. But the nation state can also tip over into nationalism, which is destructive. <coughs> so you, that is actually what, of course, happens with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, even in the United Kingdom, civil war in Ireland, the First World War. So what is good can suddenly flip to become destructive. The same thing applies to the gold standard. If one thing kept the system going as a credible rule, there were no international institutions, but if one thing kept it going as a credible rule, it was the gold standard. People signed up to the gold standard because that created stability for trade, stability for monetary systems. But it's also about power. The gold standard only came about because the Germans defeated the French and then the Germans were able to dump all their silver on the French in order to convert themselves to the gold standard. There's, so there's, what is cooperative is also about conflict. And it can tip over easily from one to the other, as it does in the interwar period. I'll come on to that. The other thing which holds the system together before 1914 is the hegemonic power of the British economy. But Britain wasn't behaving as a selfless hegemon. It was behaving in its self-interest, which happened to be in the interest of the global economy. It didn't have enough outlets for its own capital at home. It exported overseas. It wasn't doing that for the good of the rest of the world. It was doing it for its own profitability. So it's self selfish behaviour which looks as if it's selfless. But that won't always apply. And the vital point also, I would say, is that the period of globalisation before 1914 leads to convergence between the old world and the new world. Labour goes from the old world to the new world. Wages go up in the old world. It mitigates rise of wages in the new world. In the old world, land prices, farmers' profits drop, in the new world, land prices go up. You get convergence. That's generally beneficial. On the other hand, on both sides of the Atlantic, there are losers. Farmers, landowners in uh, the old world, but in the new world, workers feel that they're suffering from immigration. So at some point, I think you get my logic, this is going to flip, where the people of the losers get the upper hand. So again, it's an unstable equilibrium. It can produce a backlash. 
So this is my point here, which is that there's an internal contradiction between the nation state as a safety valve and as an aggressor. There's a possibility the gold standard flips. There's a possibility that the convergence becomes the losers on both sides overturning it. So we get the backlash. And this is the interwar period of backlash. Nationalism, warfare, ethnic cleansing. Gold standard collapses because the gold standard worked for Britain up to 1914, but in the interwar period it doesn't. Uh, the exchange rate is wrong. It leads to unemployment in the depressed industries of the north and the coal mines. So that is broken. You pull out of it. And you have a problem that there is no hegemon. Britain's declined, America's rising, but there's no dominant hegemon. And neither is there an international institution. But within that unstable equilibrium, you have various forces which push you towards repair. What are, there are various forces here which are going to revive globalism. Well, nationalism, the dangers are absolutely apparent. Warfare. Millions of people have been killed. But also, there's been a massive process of redistribution from rich to poor in the New Deal, for example. So the level of inequality drops. It's highly redistributive. So that means you don't have such a backlash against lo by losers. There's an attack upon cartels and upon large corporations. So feeling there aren't so many rent-seeking robber barons about exploiting the system. And there's a granting of increased power to labor, like in the, the Wagner Act in the United States of America. So again, it looks as if the system is fairer. And that then leads, of course, to the return of multilateralism and um, internationalism after the war. What I was talking about, the thin multilateralism, the balancing of the two sides. The US is a hegemon, although it's a constrained hegemon. But what I want to also point out here is that the balance only works in particular circumstances. This balance between internationalism and nationalism is contingent upon certain things. So we can't just go back to it, rather like the Treasurer is suggesting. We can't just go back to Bretton Woods, because Bretton Woods only worked in certain circumstances, one of which was the Cold War. The multilateral institutions were part of the Cold War. The um, GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, was to cement a Western alliance against the Soviet bloc. It's about the politics of productivity. The workers, who have been the losers under the old system, are benefiting now from high productivity and the fact that the gains of productivity are not just going to profits, but also to the workers. That only works when people who have got um, skills not based upon formal educational qualifications, working in car plants and so on, are getting some of the gains. So they're not going to be like, thinking that globalisation is against them. And there's also a social contract within welfare states between workers and capital to make sure that there's a balance of, gainers for, of gains for workers and for capital. 
So those institutions only work in those, circ those circumstances. But then I would argue that those circumstances then weaken in the 1970s. Why? Partly because of the failures within the institutions themselves, Bretton Woods was limited. It did not force adjustment by the creditor nation, the United States. It did not force countries with strong balance of payments like Germany and Japan to revalue. It had a flaw built into it. Then the IMF decides to encourage financial liberalisation, even when countries didn't want to be financially liberalised, and despite the fact that the IMF rules did not lay down the need for financial liberalisation. So it's about the enforcement of the Washington Consensus, which undermines the legitimacy of the system. And you have the collapse of the Soviet bloc. <coughs> if you don't have somebody to fight against, then you can do what you want. You don't need to be so thinking about, well, if we don't behave properly here, the Soviets will take advantage of it. So there's all these contingent circumstances. Um, a rise in the level of concentration and a return of levels of inequality not seen since before the um, First World War. The famous Piketty graph where inequality on the right there has gone back to the pre-war level. So now losers are going to start to fight back. So hyper-globalisation was destructive of national interests. It could be seen as being in the benefit of a small group of rent seekers, cartels, high-tech companies, financial capitalists, and it becomes a dangerous moment like the debates over distribution at the time of the First World War. So there are risks about a backlash. Hyperglobalization gone too far. Now, we have the global financial crisis, and that crisis was solved. It didn't lead to a collapse like the Great Depression, but it also, with quantitative easing, leads to asset price increases and growing inequality. So it seems as if we've got out of the crisis by helping some people and not others. It's linked with austerity, so the losers who were hit hard lose out. That's one reason why they vote for Brexit in Britain. There's a continued rise to the level of concentration, backlash against people who are evading, as it is seen, taxation, the need to solve the, get the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks, the debate over base erosion and profit shifting. And all of that backlash can lead to what Martin Wolf from the Financial Times has called a populist, protectionist, nationalist backlash, which can be dangerous in the same way as it was before the First World War. Now, what can we do about it? I have four minutes and 43 seconds to tell you what to do about it. Um, so I better go pretty quickly on this. Historians have 2020 perfect back hindsight. We're no better than anybody else in looking forward, other than perhaps using this mode of analysis that I've talked about. So I've got a number of uh, lessons from this. First lesson. Don't look to solutions that emerged from particular contingent circumstances. 
Bretton Woods arose during the war, with only two countries really shaping it, Britain and the United, uh, Britain and the United States. And it was implemented in the Cold War. It couldn't have been implemented as it was without that. So you can't simply go back. Back to Bretton Woods is, is not possible. It's got to be done in a different way, which, to be fair to the treasurer, I think he sees. Second point, forget the restoration of a hegemon. Before the First World War, it was Britain. After the Second World War, it was the United States. We're not going to go back to that. We're going to be in a multipolar world. And even if you did have another hegemon, it's not like what happened before. Britain and the United States were fundamentally similar in supporting free market capitalism with different emphases. China, the United States, as a rising and a falling hegemon, are not that. So it's different in that sense. What we do need to do, my third lesson, is the return to a balance of national policy with credible rules. That does not mean this unaccountable global bureaucracy. So I'm with the Prime Minister on that. The person I'm with, would you believe, is Larry Summers. Because Larry Summers, after the crisis, said the alternative to reflex internationalism is responsible nationalism. A return, gosh, a return, I just said you can't have a return, a return to the post-war thin multilateralism to balance nationalism and internationalism, to prevent states being self-seeking, like Trump now is, and to have a flexible set of rules to allow internationalism. But, and this is my challenge to you lot, the obverse of responsible nationalism is responsible capitalism. And I think that's something which struck me recently when I spoke at a meeting of the fiduciary investors, big sovereign wealth funds and pension funds, where the thing which concerned them more than anything was populism. And they saw their role as investors to make companies behave responsibly, because if they didn't, there were, there were bigger risks to them. So what would a responsible capitalism look like? Now, this is very impertinent of me as a historian um, to tell you uh, what, what to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, because I was told you would like to, to hear, exactly. hear that. I hope they're right. Um, first of all, action on concentration. I don't know if you know the recent book by Tepper, Jonathan Tepper, which argues that we've got a sort of rent-seeking ersatz capitalism at the moment, and that real capitalism is about competition. And that therefore means going back to progressive era or New Deal policies to reduce the power of big cartels and trusts and rent-seeking behaviour. That links with the policy over taxation, which is benefiting some at the expense of others that the retail sector can't offshore, for example. And the third thing is how to move from shareholder value to a wider definition of stakeholders. We have a general election at home at the moment, which I'm very delighted not to be uh, attending at the moment. Uh, Corbyn wants to give 10% of, of shares in all companies with more than 250 people to the workers. I don't think that's the way to do it. Theresa May, before she uh, gave up as Prime Minister, 
did argue for something more like the German style of uh, involvement of workers within, within firms. Right, stop, it says. Um, I'm almost there. One minute more. The next point is to have a more activist local state. We've had a stripping out of local government in Britain. And I think what we need to have is local initiatives to rebuild the sort of local capitalism that we had uh, in the Victorian period. But taking that even further, the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore and Chair of the G20 Eminent Persons Group on Global Finance Governance said what we need is a new cooperative international order to deal with a more multipolar, more decentralised system, which is at the same time more interconnected. And you don't do that by going back to the old multilateralism of powerful institutions. You do it through networks. You start off with national policies to balance losers and gains at the national level. That's where that resides legitimately. Then international institutions concentrate upon spillovers where national initiatives can't work. But that must be done by consensus building, not by imposition from an international global bureaucracy. And you do that through a wide range of different networks rather than institutions. And my final challenge to business people is engage in that. Because what is often forgotten is that the post-war institutions were built very often by business people. The US Secretary of State uh, in the late, at the end of the war, uh, Stettinius, was the chairman of US Steel. Paul Hoffman, who carried out the Marshall Plan and various other initiatives, was the chairman of the Studebaker Motor Company. They saw that engaging deeply in building these institutions was vital to preserving capitalism as a successful system. So that's the challenge I give to you as a historian. I look forward to your rescuing the world. Thank you. <laughs>